If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 with me this morning. If you don't have your Bible or weren't able to bring it with you, that's okay. You can turn to page 44 of the New Testament section of the Bible that's underneath the chair in front of you. So go ahead and pull that out and turn to Luke chapter 2. And we're, we're going to get there in just a minute. I want to ask you to do something this morning. I want you to reflect back with me. I, I want you to remember a time, maybe, maybe in high school, a time in high school when you were at the top of the class. You know, can you remember that? Think back to a time where you, um, you aced that exam and, and everybody else failed it and, and, and you were top, you were king. Or you, you were in the basketball game and you took the last shot and you won the game and, and everybody went crazy and it was just a wonderful time and everybody's excited. Can you remember that? Can you remember that feeling? That, can you remember being top of the class? I know I don't. <laughs> I kind of went through high school, kind of going through, trying to figure things out. In fact, I can remember a time when uh, a church that I was doing some, some work with, that uh, they were going to have a big summer musical. And uh, we were going to go, and we were going to go visit a couple churches and sing and do this musical. And, and I can remember that there was this uh, certain girl that was going to be part of that. So, of course, the Lord was leading me to be part of it as well. <laughs> And so I went and, and, and I auditioned. Now, I got to tell you, in high school, you know, I lived from season to season. You know, it was football, basketball, then track, then baseball, and that's really all I did. No, nobody had yet to tell me that I wasn't quite that good of a singer. You know, of course, my mom told me I was wonderful, but, you know, that's what moms do. So I go and I, and I try out, and uh, sure enough, I get one of the lead roles and, and I'm excited. And so I get the music and I go and work on it and I show up for the, for the first time for us to practice. And we're all in a big group. And so we're up at the front and we're singing and, and I'm just bellowing away. And, um, all of a sudden the, the lady that's directing the music, she's like, okay, stop, stop, stop everybody. Um, I want, I want just this half of, of the choir to sing. I just want this half. And so we're like, okay. So she starts the music again and we just start singing and I'm bellowing again. And we get only about a line in and she's like, all right, stop, 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 stop. All right. Now, now I just want this little section to sing. And I mean, I'm dumb as a hammer. I have no idea where she's going with this, but so we start singing and, I, and I'm bellowing and we say about two words and she's like, all right, stop, stop you. And of course, she's pointing to me. She's like, come here. And so I step out and she's like, I want you to sit here <laughs> behind me. And so they go on and I'm just sitting there. And finally, the lady that comes in, who's the main director, they, they get together and they talk. And finally, the main director comes to me and she's like, um, you know, Jason, there's been a little mistake. <laughs> See, actually, there's a different boy that was supposed to have that part. And I was like, well, that's okay. Um, so do I have kind of one of the more, more kind of minor roles or something in, in the musical? And she's like, well, you, you know, you could say that. And I was like, well, you know, I don't mind singing over here. And she's like, well, it doesn't really require so much singing. Um, see, we're going to put you on, on the light and sound crew. <laughs> and in fact, we're going to make you the guy that does the lights. And so here is my job. So everybody comes in and gets seated. And when it's time for it to begin, I flip the lights off. And then when everybody gets on stage and is ready, I 
flip the lights back on. <laughs> and I do the same thing at intermission. And I do the same thing at end. That was my role. Uh, here I was thinking that, that I was going to be top dog, that I had one of the main roles and this is what I was going to do. But then I found myself kind of playing second fiddle. Well, today's sermon, today's story is for everybody, anybody who's felt like they were top dog and then found themselves playing second fiddle because today's sermon is about a nation. It's about a people who, who thought they were the chosen people of God, but time has gone by and they, and they now feel like they've been left behind. They now feel like they've been left behind and they've been left alone and they feel like they've been thrust upon the hands of Caesar Augustus and have been completely forgotten about. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about the story of Caesar Augustus and how his reign and his rule impacted these people. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Luke 2, verse 1 with me. It says, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Okay, okay, let's stop right there for a second. Okay, we always pull out this story, right? This time of year. Um, It's Luke 2. It's the Christmas story. And uh, a lot of times when we read through it, we just kind of breeze through this part, you know, uh, and we, we don't pay that close attention to it because we want to get to the cute, tiny little baby Jesus in the manger, don't we? Because that's what the story's all about. That's, that's the part we want to get to. And we, we just kind of breeze past this. But see, Luke, he doesn't want us to breeze past Caesar Augustus. See, the biblical writers, they didn't just include some superfluous words throughout their writing. They put things in there for a reason. And because of the time that Luke was writing this, the people that would have read this, when they would have seen the word Caesar Augustus, they would have had an emotional reaction to what they read. But it wouldn't have been a neutral one. You see, you and I read the word Caesar Augustus, and we kind of go, Ah, yeah, Caesar Augustus, that... That guy in history, the, oh yeah, yeah, Roman Empire, a Roman Emperor, that, that, that's the who he is. And we just kind of keep going, if we even think that much about it. But in that time, in that place, the readers of Luke's words, they, they would have opened it up and they would have read those words and they would have despised them. They would have been upset by them. They, they would have been delighted at them, depending on who they were at that time. And so... Caesar Augustus, we're now to just gloss right on over them. Luke wants us to pay careful, close attention to them. Let, let me give you an example. Let's say um, you wake up tomorrow morning and you open up the eagle and you're reading this story. And the story starts off and it says, In the 1960s, a woman in Dallas went to walk her dog. Riveting, right? It's an exciting story. No, that, that story's pretty dull. I mean, it, it better get a whole lot better real quick. If I'm going to keep reading it, it needs to get interesting. So let's say we add a few facts to it. You know, one, just one or two. Let's say we add these facts. Let's say you open it, and it re, you read it, and it says, In 1963, on November 22nd, a woman went to walk her dog in Dallas in Dealey Plaza. It's a different story, right? Why? Well, we've added a factor to to it. And each one of us in this room knows that in 1963, on November 22nd, if you went to walk your dog in Dealey Plaza, you're going to see 
or observe one of the most significant events, one of the most famous and continually told about events in our nation's history. That morning, if you were in Dealey Plaza. Well, let's fast forward just a few. uh, Let's go forward about 400 years. And imagine this. Let's say now the, the nation of the United States no longer exists. Because, because Canada has now become the dominant world power. And uh, <laughs> some, some excitement over here. It could happen, maybe. No. And, and nobody, even remembers, nobody even remembers that JFK was even president. Much less that he was shot in the head in, in uh, Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. That doesn't even, doesn't even come into a person's mind anymore. So a person would then open up the paper and read those same words... In 1963, on November 22nd, a woman in Dallas went to walk her dog in Dealey Plaza and would just gloss over it and keep going. But it has a significance. It has a point. And when we read those words, and when those people that time would have read those words, and it said, now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, they would have known what it would have meant, and it would have had a significant impact on the way that they understood the story. So let me tell you a little bit about Caesar Augustus. Um, at that time, most people would have known who Caesar Augustus was, because, mainly because he had coins printed, a currency with his picture over it. In fact, Caesar Augustus is only one of, one of two people that we read about in the Bible that we actually have a, a portrayal of. We, we can see his hair and we can see, uh, see his face. Um, can't really see his eyes. I guess they really didn't know how to do eyes back then. But uh, we have a little bit of a portrayal of who Caesar Augustus was and, uh, and who he is. And this is what he would have looked like. Now, Caesar Augustus, when he was a boy, he was known as Octavian. And he was a clever, clever young boy. They said that he had a, a clean mind and soft hands. And he really wasn't a warrior of, of any type. Up until that point, Rome was in civil war. And there were tons of political divisions that were splitting up Rome, unable to, 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 to reach its full strength and its full power. And right about that time, there comes along a, a distant relative of Caesar Augustus, a man named Julius Caesar. And up until Julius Caesar's rule, it was a democracy in Rome. And under Julius Caesar, it still was a bit of a democracy. He was kind of a quasi-dictator, but he could never fully bring about the, the strength and the power of Rome and pull everything together, even though he tried. And as we know, as the story goes on, Julius Caesar was assassinated. And everybody began to ask the question, who is going to become the leader? Who's going to become head of the Senate of Rome? And as we looked, there were really only two options. Actually, there was three, but one of the guys was done away with kind of early on in the running. So it really boiled down to two men, or two boys at that time. One was a man by the name of Mark Antony, which probably most of us know. And the other was Octavian. And if you would have been a betting person at that time, you never, ever would have bet on Octavian. I mean, he wasn't a warrior. He was, he was a smart guy. He was a smart kid, and he had a keen mind. But this is what they wrote about him. They said, Octavian was a talented young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. You see, they knew that he was smart. And they knew that he was talented, but they also knew that he had a very deceitful, treacherous heart. If we were betting people back at that time, we would have bet on Mark Antony. Because Mark Antony was handsome. 
He was good looking. He was a warrior and he was a great orator. In fact, they said that when Mark Antony, when he would address Rome, he would bring the Roman people to tears into what he was saying. He, he was the captain of the football team. He was, he was the homecoming queen. And, well, let's hope he was the homecoming king. <laughs> and uh, Julius Caesar, sorry, Caesar Augustus Octavian was really more like, you know, president of the chess club. You would have bet on Mark Antony. He would have been your bet. No way would you have ever thought that Octavian would have come into rule. But as the next 17 years goes on, through deceit, through selfish ambition, through violence, through intrigue, and using his own family as pawns, Octavian was able to pull the strings of Rome to eventually he had Mark Antony surrounded in Egypt. And Mark Antony gave up and he committed suicide and he died in the hands of his lover, Cleopatra. And Octavian, the clever, clever young boy, takes over as the lead of the Roman Senate. But it doesn't stop there. He continues to pull the string after string after string, and he continues to consolidate the power of Rome to where he becomes the first emperor of Rome. And he would consolidate the power, and he ushered in an era of Roman peace that would last for almost 200 years. He would bring about a magnificent empire that would last for another 400 years. And in fact, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating story. And in fact, there's some time the, the Senate, the people of the Senate began to bestow upon him the title of the divinity of the Senate. It's amazing. And Caesar Augustus himself would walk around and refer to himself as Divifilius. The son of God. And as time passed, they would begin to call him another name. Refer to him in a different way. Whereas Christians, you and I might be more familiar with. They started to call him the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. It's kind of ironic where you know where the story is going, isn't it? Now, the people reading this story back then, they would have had a full understanding of what they were saying and what was being said because it had greatly impacted their life. And they would have sit back and they would have said, yeah, you know what? I, I think he is, could be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, look at his power and everything that he's done. The whole bit of the Roman Empire was as big as the continental United States. And he had ended the civil wars and he had consolidated the political divisions that were going on. And he presided over Rome, a city that was just an amazing city. There was no city that would ever match it. Nothing that would come for at least another 1,800 years that would be anything like it. It had its own paved streets. It had sewer systems. It had running water. It had a fire department. They had huge coliseums. Circus Maximus could seat 120,000 people that would come in and watch chariot races. And it had smaller theaters and smaller coliseums where the gladiators would do battle. It was simply amazing. It is said of Caesar Augustus that he came in, Rome was just an ugly city of bricks. But when he left, he left it a city adorned in marble. And during that time, Rome was so successful economically that little mini Romans began to pop up all over the place. And and he built roads that would continue to go out and continue to expand the, the borders of Rome. 
setting out troops so they could further oppress people. He consolidated the currency under one single currency so people could come in and they could do finance real easily under one currency. He, he uh, put in a dual language system so that every citizen in Rome would know two languages so that tribes and cultures could come in and easily do, to do business, <laughs> to bring about money and more money. And he brought about a wonderful time, well, for the Romans, of peace and prosperity and luxury and comfort that would not be seen again for a very long time. I mean, something like the European Union is only just a small little picture of what Rome was like. They said that the, the, the Roman Empire is without borders. People could go and cross without, with ease. I mean, could you imagine today going all the way from England down to North Africa over into the Middle East without a passport, without being stopped to be checked? You could just freely move about. But the question is, how was he able to do it? I mean, how was somebody that, that wasn't even a, uh, a warrior, somebody that was just a young, smart boy, how was he able to do this? Well, I know a historian that tells us, and Luke writes these words. Let's go back to the text. Look at verse 1 again in Luke chapter 2. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was still the governor of Syria. So how did you get that kind of power back then? Well, kind of the same way you would get that kind of power now. You needed two things. You needed troops and you needed money. Well, how did you get the troops? Well, you got the troops with the money. Well, how did you get the money? Well, you got it through taxes. So Caesar Augustus goes out and what he does is he pulls everybody together for a census. And make you know, no mistake about it, Caesar Augustus was no lover of people. He wasn't pulling them together to know how many people there were so that he could sit back and figure out how to take better care of them, how to do things better for them. He was doing it for one reason and for one reason only. He wanted to count the people so that he knew how many people he had so that he knew how to tax them. Because remember, Caesar Augustus is smart. He knows that if you tax people too much, well, they revolt. And that's a problem he didn't want to have. If, but if you tax them too little, then you can't raise enough money to support your troops to continue to oppress the people. So that's a problem. And as history goes on and tells us, it says that under Caesar Augustus, the height of his power, he had over, had over 500,000 troops under his command. And Luke is saying, look, do you remember this? As you read this, do you understand? Do you see what's going on? Do you remember who Caesar Augustus was and what he did and what he was able to bring about? Do you remember all of that? And it says this in verse 3. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So now imagine the chaos that's in the Roman Empire, right? I mean, you have people all the way up from Spain, England, down through North Africa, over into the Middle East. You've got this huge, huge group of people and and land, and everybody's having to pack everything up. They're having to load everything up, and they have to go back to the city from which their family originated. And and I can hear the people, especially the Israelites at this time as they're doing this, and they're thinking, oh man, I can't believe this is happening. This just proves that God is silent. 
This just proves that, that he doesn't care for us anymore. We haven't even had a decent prophet in over 400 years. God, we thought that we were supposed to be your chosen people. And now you have left us to the hands of the Romans. We know that the only reason that, that Caesar is making us do this and pulling us together is because he wants to count us. Because he wants to tax us. So that he can raise more money for more troops. So that he can only oppress us all the more. I mean, God, what is happening Is this some sort of cosmic joke? And if you were able to go and ask Caesar Augustus, maybe you were on the Palatine Hill at the time the census was taking place. If you were able to sit back and ask him and say, hey Caesar, why are you doing all this? Why why are you making this happen? What's the point of the census? How would Caesar have responded Well, he may have sat back, and if he was being shrewd and political, he would have looked at you and said, I'm doing it for the good of Rome. But if he was just a little bit honest, he may look at you and say, I'm doing it for the benefit of me. But if Caesar was being really honest, he probably would have lounged back and looked at you with a big smile, and he would have said, I'm doing it. Because I can make it happen. I am the one who is in charge here. I am the one who is in rule. I am the one who tell these people to jump and they ask me how high. I tell them to do and they do it. I am the king of kings and I am the lord of lords. And it is my will that will be done in Rome. That's why this is happening. Because I can make it happen. And if you went to Barnes and Noble and you picked out a book on the history of Rome and read through it, I don't know that you would find a historian that would disagree with that. Caesar Augustus, he was pretty powerful. I mean, and he had done a lot in Rome. You know, there was probably no man before then or since that time that had that much power within his decrees that he could do. But I know at least one author, one historian who used to be a doctor. He wrote two books, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and he begs to differ. Because Luke is asking a different question than that. Luke is saying, or asking, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Is it Caesar Augustus? Or is it somebody else entirely? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. Said so Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Okay, so Joseph is going back to Bethlehem, right? He's from the line of David and Uh, That's where his family originated from. So he has to pack up and he has to go, like everybody else, back to his, his area of origination. But Luke throws in the last part of verse five when he says, Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. You see, Caesar had no idea what was going on. Luke and Mary, they were just two people to be counted. 
And it was exciting because they had a baby, which could also be counted. And we could just add and tax more. And, but no idea, no clue. But you and I, the readers of this story, would have understand that Mary is carrying the Messiah. <laughs> and that child is a fulfillment of prophecy. The child was and had to be born in Bethlehem. And here's where you see Caesar's story and you see God's story. And they began to intersect. It's fascinating. Continue on in verse 6. It says, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Why did this happen? I mean, did it happen for the good of Rome? Did, Did it happen for the good of Caesar Augustus? Did it happen because Caesar could make it happen? No. You see, here's what Luke is saying. In a very subtle, subtle way, he's asking, who's in charge? Is it Caesar? No. It's God. Israel, don't think that you've been forgotten. Don't think that you've been left behind. I know it may look like Caesar has all this power at his hands and you are being crushed underneath them. But the Lord your God has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten his people. But you see, there's a slight problem. When the story begins, Mary and Joseph, well, they're in the wrong place. I mean, Mary's pregnant and she's carrying the Messiah But they understand that there's this one little verse back in Micah 5.2 that says this. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. Mary and Joseph were in the wrong town. and, And in order for this one little verse... This one little piece of God's scripture to be fulfilled, they had to get back to Bethlehem. Now, I can think of a million ways that God could have gotten them back to Bethlehem. I mean, wouldn't it have made sense maybe from the very beginning that God could have just have orchestrated things and they could have just been there to begin with? (laughs) Or, or, you know, maybe Joseph early on in in the pregnancy, he could have got a contracting job in Bethlehem. I mean, Joseph was a carpenter, right? Could have got a big contracting job in Bethlehem and they would have had to pack up and move and go to Bethlehem and Jesus could have been born there. Or I don't know, Aunt Mariah could have called and said, hey, I'm sending a camelgram to you and I want you guys to come over for matzo balls one night and and show up. And and he could have used any number of a million different ways to get Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem so this could take place. But here is what Luke is saying. Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem Because God used Caesar Augustus and his census. And he wants his readers and the people reading the words to understand that. The entire Rome was set into motion. The entire world of Rome was set into motion. And people were packing up and they were loading up to head all the way back to where they were originated. Just so one word of prophecy could be fulfilled. Who's in charge? The most powerful man in the world at that time in Rome? Caesar Augustus? Or God? 
You know, something that's interesting is that one of the last public words that um, addresses that Caesar Augustus was able to make while he was still healthy, a public address that he made, he stood before his people and he said, I found Rome, a city of bricks, and I leave it, leave it adorned as a city of marble. And you know what? I mean, he was right. <laughs> I mean, Caesar Augustus had pulled something off pretty, pretty impressive. He was the leader of the Roman Empire for almost 40 years, and he established an empire that would, that would last for another 400. I mean, it was pretty amazing what he was able to do. And probably no other human being other than Jesus Christ has had more impact on how you and I live today and how Western civilization unfolded. But if you keep reading your history books, if you, if you dig just a little bit further, a little bit deeper, you'll find something else that Caesar Augustus said. And he kind of said to his inner circle, his entourage, and he said this, I have played the part, and I, if I have played it well, give me applause. Now, I don't know if Luke... <laughs> knew that, that Caesar Augustus had said that. I mean, it could have been public knowledge of what Caesar Augustus said, or that he had said this. I think Luke may have known, because here's what I think Luke is saying. Luke is saying this. He's saying, Caesar Augustus, you clever, clever boy, I, I, I will give you your applause, because <laughs> you have played the part, and you have played it so well. You came in and you took Rome that was divided and you brought it together and you consolidated under your power, through your tyranny, through, through your violence, through your brutality. You brought Rome together and you were able to, to bring about a census and, and, and bring people in so that you could count them, so that you could tax them, so that you could raise money, so that you could continue to oppress them. Oh, Caesar, you played the part and you played it so well. The only problem is you thought you were playing to your own script. Because that very census that you used, God took it and used it to bring about the birth of the Savior and the town of Bethlehem so that Mary and Joseph would be exactly where they needed to be as was prophesied so long ago. Oh, Caesar Augustus, you played the part and you played it so well. You built these Roman roads so that you could send your troops out and expand your borders so that you could continue to send troops to continue to oppress the people. Oh, Caesar, you played the part and you played it so well, but little did you know that within just a few years, some very average fishermen would use those same roads to take the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout Rome to the end of its borders and beyond. You know, Caesar Augustus, You played the part, and you played it so well. You brought about a unified economic system that used one currency for your benefit for trade and commerce. You played the part, and you played it so well, but little did you know that God would use that unified currency so that the early church could fund the gospel and send it out all around the world in a way that it never could have had it been divided. Oh, Caesar Augustus, you played the part, and you played it so well. You created this, this, these, this borderless empire where people, an average man, could just move freely back and forth without check. 
And at this time, the gospel was able to spread in a way that it never could have before. Rome was unified and never has been able to since. Oh, Caesar Augustus, you played the part and you played it so well that God even used your despicable, humiliating Roman cross that you used to humiliate humanity, to slay his son, to bring about the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of the world. Oh yeah, Caesar Augustus, you played your part and I'll give you your applause. And you played it so well. You too could have received the same forgiveness if only you would have humbled yourself and bowed before the real King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, you played the part and you played it well. The only thing is, is that you thought you were playing it to your own script when all along... (laughs) You were really playing according to God's script. Eight days later, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple as required by the law. And they met a man there, a prophet by the name of Simeon. He's, well, he's actually somebody that received words from the Lord. We don't have any of prophetic writings, but he received words from God. And when they came up and they brought the child, he rejoiced and he wanted to hold him because he knew that God had promised him that he would see the Messiah before his death. And he took him into his arms and he gave us this prophecy that Luke recorded 40 years after it happened. If you look in verse 29, it says this. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We have another little prophecy, just like the one in Micah 5, 2, which prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And here, this is another prophecy that's saying this little boy and the message of what he would do and what he has come to, to accomplish would spread throughout the entire empire and that it would be a light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. And sure enough, Peter and Paul And the apostles, they would use the Roman roads. They would use the borderless empire. They would use the unified currency. They would use everything that Caesar had set in place to freely move about and spread the gospel to town after town after town so that heart after heart would be won and turned towards Jesus Christ. It's a dangerous, dangerous prophecy to make. I mean, but here's the thing. that The gospel message, it would continue on. And it would go on and on. Long after Caesar Augustus had died. Long after Luke had died. And it would continue to be preached. So that heart and town would be turned towards Jesus Christ. And the Roman Empire continued. And 300 years later... Another Caesar Augustus with that title sitting on the throne of Rome would give his heart to Jesus Christ. And at that time, most people believe that about 50% of the Roman Empire had come to put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the word of God always has a fascinating, amazing way of coming true. And if God can move heaven and earth to make Micah 5.2 come true and be fulfilled... Well, then he had made this prophecy come true as well. 
But if you were reading those words at that time, it wouldn't have felt that way. There would have been nothing to give you hope that that would happen because you were under the oppression of Rome and it was just gaining in strength. Yet heart after heart, knee after knee would bow to Jesus Christ. So who's in charge? Who's in charge? This is the question that Luke is asking and answering for his audience at this time. But it's also the same question that he's asking you and I. When we look at our lives and the way that we're living, who's in charge? Whose will is going to be done? Whose kingdom is going to be built? And for whose glory? You know, it's fascinating. We sit here 2,000 years later, long, long after Caesar is gone, long after the Roman Empire has fallen, and Caesar's palace only exists in Vegas these days. And we name our children Peter, Paul, and Mary, and music groups. And, and we name our dogs Nero and Caesar. <laughs> And Rome, the city of Rome, is nothing more than an attraction. What, what, a, what a stark contrast to how it used to be. But who's in charge? Whose kingdom are you working on? The kingdom that Caesar built? Or the one that began 1,500 miles away in a little stable manger? Let me read to you some words from 1 John 2, verse 16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Did you catch that? This world is fading away. You know, I, I actually like the healthcare in America. I think we've done a lot to advance modern medicine, and, and a lot has happened. I mean, it's just amazing when you look back and you see the development of things that have taken place over history. It's unbelievable. But as I was reading, I was extremely disappointed the other day. Because I was doing some research, and I opened up and it looked, and do you know this? A male born in the year 1974 still has a 100% chance of dying? I mean, that's not a very good healthcare system, is it? Well, nobody's is much better than that. But here's the point. It's all going to fade away. Every life that exists is going to bring glory to God. The Bible tells us that even Pharaoh gave glory to God as an object of wrath. This passage here tells us that, that Caesar Augustus, the, the tyrant that he was, the self-absorbed person that he was, the violence that he used, God used him for his glory. That's not the question. The question this morning is, who's in charge? Will we give glory to God as God's enemies or as God's children? And if we are Christians, the question is, will we give glory to God passively Or will we give it to him aggressively? Because here's the danger for you and me. The danger is this. The danger is we can become little Caesars. 
we can begin to think that we're in charge and we can begin to build our own kingdom where things like our wealth, our savings accounts, our families, our careers, things that in and of themselves are good, they're not bad, but when they become the main point, we start to become little Caesars. And God just becomes something to make all these things go a little bit better. God becomes the little, the little card that you stick in your wallet so that you have it when your car breaks down. He, he becomes roadside assistance. So we go about living life, building for our own things and doing our own things. And we only start to pull God out when we need him. When, when he can do something for us. Who's in charge? Who are you living for? Let me step back just a second. When you, when you leave here, what are you going to do? I'm going to lunch. Kids eat free at Dickie's on Sunday. Um, but is that your purpose? Is your purpose to go and have lunch and maybe to go to a restaurant and get good service? Tomorrow, when you go to work, is, is your purpose just to, to do a good job just so that you can uh, get advanced or, or have a higher salary? A little bit close to our life, tomorrow when you're at home alone with the kids because they're out of school, is your purpose going to be just to survive? I can relate to that. <laughs> Six, four, and one and a half, I can relate to that. <laughs> But is it going to be just to survive and get past? Will God become the roadside assistance where we pull, pull him out and just use him when we have need? Or do we realize that as we go and eat lunch, as we go to work, as we're at home with our kids, as we study for our exams, as we go through life, that our purpose is to give God glory and not to give it passively, but to give it to him aggressively? I want, you, I want you to say that, God, I'm here at this restaurant. I'm here at work. I'm here at home. I'm, I'm here with my kids. I'm here at school. I'm wherever God has put you, wherever he's put you in life, that is not just to be fed. It is not just to advance a career. It is not just to get by. But God, I am here and I am doing these things because I want to give you glory. I want to give you the glory that you deserve. I want to give you glory in the way that it will last for all eternity. Who's in charge? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And I know that I have lived far too much as though this world matters a whole lot more than it really does. And Father, I know that for myself that I have gone throughout the day thinking that this is it, living for the here and the now, that this is, this is what it's about, my agenda, my plan, my little kingdom, my little Caesar's palace. But Father, I ask for myself and I ask for all of us here today that we would walk out those doors with the purpose to aggressively glorify you. We are on your side. We are your children. And we count on you every single minute of every single day. 
Lord, we lift these requests up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a Merry Christmas.